Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, hey, we're going to be with you just a second. I'm doing my, my stuff, moving my things around here, getting everything settled and situated. If you've noticed, I've been using the stool a little bit more. So uh, no laughing. You know what you're all thinking. I know it's not just to hold the water bottle. Sometimes it holds my behind up in the middle of it because I'm getting tired sometimes. But um, it is really good to be with you this morning on this beautiful, beautiful February day. Hey, I don't know if you heard this or not, and it's totally unrelated to anything spiritual, but the Eagles are going to be in the Super Bowl. I, I, I know. I, I actually heard about it. You know, I had the game on last weekend. You know, you believe that or not, we had the game on. We were all in different rooms doing different things, but the game was on because we were trying to relate to all of you. Um, but anyway... <laughs> I'm excited that, the, uh, that that's going to happen. It's a great opportunity for people to be with friends and to overeat and get too little sleep next weekend. So um, we're just going to put that in God's hands and pray that he would do some really awesome stuff. It's good to have you with us today. If you're joining us here in person or online, I'm Pastor Paul, and it's really nice to have an opportunity to worship with the body of Christ. Are you encouraged by that this morning? Were you encouraged to just worship God this morning? Thank you, worship team. Can you take a moment and just show your appreciation to our worship team this morning? We love you guys. Remember, remember, worship is not about music. Music is a medium by which we worship God. It is a method. It is a tool that we use. And you can do it with a full band. You can do it with a few instruments. You can do it with no instruments. In fact, the early church didn't really use instruments. If you go back to the, to, to the first century and you look at how some of the early church actually worshiped, they didn't use Instruments. They used their voices. Their voices became the instrument they used to worship the Lord. It was a beautiful opportunity this morning to worship. So I hope your heart was encouraged, and I hope you were blessed this morning. Um, we are going to get into our Bible engagement theme this morning. If you've been tracking with us, we wrapped up Bible engagement um, last week looking at volume four. Today we are changing and going to a new volume, but we're looking at a new faith verse as well. If you walked in and you happen to notice that the faith verse changed on the wall, it's because we are in a new volume. Today's faith verse is actually comes out of Psalm 37:23. What a beautiful verse to completely connect what we've already experienced this morning. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Think of the significance of that verse with me just for a few moments this morning. It will challenge the way you see God if you meditate on this verse. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. Who is the one that directs the path of those who trust in God? God. God is the one. Do we make plans? Yes. Do we have passions? Do we seek God through the process? Yes. Ultimately, though, if our desires and our heartbeat is to honor God in our lives and to make him the center of our life, it is not us who direct our paths. It is God who directs our paths. It talks about the intentionality of God wanting to be involved in our lives. Isn't that cool? Think about it. He's intentionally wants to be involved in our lives. And look at the second part. He delights in every detail of their lives. Have you ever thought about that? That God actually delights in every detail of your life. He actually takes pleasure in the fact that you are excited to see the Eagles in the Super Bowl next week. (laughs) That you're thinking about already some of your favorite snack foods that you're going to put together and the things you're going to eat that you probably shouldn't. And you love it in that moment. He delights in the fact that you're going to experience joy. And when they take the Super Bowl and they win and there's all the crazy stuff that goes on and you're jumping around like a crazy person, God delights in that. That doesn't mean he's an Eagles fan, okay? (laughs) Because the people that are believers on the other side doesn't mean he doesn't love them. I'm just saying when we do things that give us joy, if our priority of our heart is to honor God and what we do, he delights in seeing us be delighted. Does that make sense? If you have children or if you've ever given gifts to someone, if you're not, a, not a, child, a child, but maybe a niece or a nephew or maybe just a close friend of yours, to give them something that you can see opens up something in their heart, that they're really encouraged by it and they're joyful and they get enjoyment out of it. Doesn't that bless you to know that a gift that you've given someone gives someone else life? Doesn't that encourage you? That's how God views us. 
He loves us. He delights in all good things that we enjoy when we make him the center of our lives. That's our faith verse today. And now we are looking at volume three in our Bible engagement. And today we're going to be um, cramming two sessions together. We're looking at volume, one, uh, volume three, sessions one and two in Bible engagement. We do have all of the notes on our website. You can look at it through the church app that we have as well through Bible engagement. Um, and we are going to talk about some really passionate crazy, awesome stuff this morning out of Exodus 14 and Exodus 16. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to, to turn to Exodus 14 and, or Exodus 16, and you can, you can park there for a few moments. And before we go any further, I want to tell you a story. I was about 13 years old. When I was 12, my family and I moved from Long Island, or as some of you people would say, Long Island, to New Jersey, North Jersey. A lot of our family still lived in Long Island. Now, if you know anything about the trip from North Jersey to Long Island or vice versa, when you go from North Jersey to Long Island, my family was out in Nassau County, Long Island, my mom's side of the family, we would go visit them periodically. There was a path that we would take to get there every single time we would visit. We would take Route 208 to Route 4, Route 4 to the George Washington Bridge, George Washington Bridge to the Cross Bronx Expressway. Cross Bronx Expressway would take us to the, uh, the Cross Island, the Frog's Neck Bridge, the Cross Island Parkway, Long Island Expressway, eventually to get us to Syosset, New York. Anyone tracking with me? Okay, a couple of you are like, yeah, man, I got you. I got you. Good hand. So that's what the path was. It was Route 4 to 208, um, George Washington Bridge, Cross Bronx Expressway, Frog's Neck Bridge, Cross Island Parkway, Long Island Expressway, Syosset, New York. That's what we would do every single time we would go. As a kid, I would memorize that in my mind. Let me tell you why. Because if we ever deviated from that path, I was terrified. Now, in the 80s, okay, I'm talking about in the early 80s when we would make these trips, the Bronx didn't have a great reputation, okay? We would drive by cars in the Bronx, especially on the expressway, and we would see skeletons of cars on the sides of the road. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody understand what I'm talking about? All you Pennsylvanians. You're like, what are you talking about? If you left a car on the side of the road for any period of time, there's a good chance you come back and it was gone, or most of it was gone. I had a friend of mine that actually broke down on the Cross Bronx years ago, and he pulled over, popped the hood just to go to the front of the car, and he was looking for something, and the car made this, like, within five minutes of him checking, there was, like, this movement, and he leaned over, and the guy in the back was like, hey, man, we're cool, we just want the tires. And he was like, this is my car, get out of here. True story. It was a scary place to be in the 80s. And I remember a time that my mom and my sister and myself, we were going to go into New York and we were going to visit our family. My dad was on a trip, so he gave us all the instructions and you know, wrote down what we were going to do. And uh, you know, my mom, she was gifted in many different ways, but in directions, not so much. Okay, So if we did that, and she relied on me, a 12 or 13-year-old, to navigate that sometimes, so the pressure was pretty high. We had this great idea to bring our neighbor across the street. She said she'd come with us. So this lady came from across the street. We knew her for a year or two. Uh, oh, I'll go with you, Dee. That's fine. So she was in the front, and she decided to drive. Okay, So what are we doing? We go to 208, to Route 4. I'm got good. Check, check, check. Fort Washington. I mean, I'm sorry, Fort Lee. We got to Fort Lee. George Washington Bridge, checkbox, and we're going over the Cross Bronx Expressway, and instead of bearing to the left, there's a little sign in the corner that says Triborough Bridge, and she took the Triborough Bridge exit. And my face, I still remember being in the back of the, of the, the car. We were in a little Ford Tempo, four-door, four looking out the window, fear coming over my head. I mean, just absolute fear, because we didn't just go off the Crossbox Expressway, but we went down and around and looped around a few times till we were like way, way low. The expressway was way up above us, and then we went into some place that I had no idea where we were. It was absolutely terrifying. We were all scared. Yeah, it was scary. So we're driving down the road. We're going down a few different places, and we have no idea. And I remember in that moment while she was pulling over, where are you going? Where are you going? And my mom said, where are you going? Why did you get off there? Well, I just thought we were going to go. And she's like, no, we were supposed to go that way. I just thought we were supposed to go that way. It's not. I'm sitting in the back of the seat. I'm like, it's not in the instructions. The instructions and the directions say go left. You went right. Why did you go? I don't even know what the Triborough Bridge is. I've never heard of it before. I don't know why we're going there. And I'm freaking out in the back. Oh, we'll figure it out. Everything's going to be okay. So we're going through areas of the city that I knew nothing about. I didn't know anything about 12, 13 years old. We drove by. I still remember driving down this street and there was busy traffic and there were vendors all on the side. And I remember this huge sign we passed that said Hubcap City. <laughs> and it was like a block. 
And I went, I feel like I'm in a movie, like someone's going to mug us or whatever. We were scared out of our minds. What are we going to do? We finally found a police officer, this really nice lady. She was just directing traffic on the road. And I thought, ah, we are going to be okay. Pulled up to her, rolled the window down. And we said, could you please help us? I think my mom asked. We're looking for the Cross Bronx Expressway. No joke. The lady looked at us and said, Cross Bronx? There's no Cross Bronx. What? There's no, we were just on the crossway. There are no cross bongs. Sorry, there are no cross bongs. That's what she said. True story. I'm thinking, is she new? Is she tricking us? Is this like we're a candy camera? Like, what's the deal? Are we going on? Are we getting punked? Like, I don't know what's going on at this point. We go down the road. I don't know, left, right, turning, couple minutes, 10, 15 minutes, 25 minutes, almost a 30-minute delay. There's finally a sign in front of us that said, Throg's Neck Bridge, Long Island. And everything in me went from fear, apprehension, and anxiety to peace. Because I saw the right sign. We went back on the right path. We got there really late, but we finally got there. Let me tell you why I'm sharing this with you this morning. Because we were in a serious mess. We were in a serious mess. We went off plan. It wasn't scripted. And we had no idea what we were going to do until we finally saw the sign that put us back on the right path to show us how to get through. You with me? This morning, we are going to be looking at a message from uh, session one and two for volume three. And the theme today is basically stepping out and it's where's God in our mess? Where's God in our mess? God is in messes. Now, maybe some of you this morning may not like the term mess because maybe mess gives you a little bit of an anxiety attack like it gave me. The truth of the matter is messes are real. Messes happen to all of us, and there's different kinds of messages. The question, the question we're really going to answer today, I want to rephrase this, is really this. How can I trust God when life gets messy? How can you trust God when life gets messy? Because the truth of the matter is, life does get messy. And over the years that I've existed on this planet, whether I've been in the church or outside the church, in corporate or not in corporate, here's what I have found. Everybody experiences mess in this world. Everyone experiences problems in this world. Everyone goes through difficult things. Life can be messy. And there's different types of mess. There's work mess. There's family mess. There's marriage mess. There's parenting mess. There's parent mess. Financial mess. The list goes on and on. There's abuse. There's addictions. There's things that we we deal with on an ongoing basis that can affect us physically, emotionally, spiritually. There's a lot of mess that we deal with in this world. But I want to say something about the mess before we move on. First, sometimes life's messages are opportunities to see God's power work in us. Okay? Sometimes messes are God's or an opportunity to see God's work, um, his power work in us. Personal pain, heartache, struggle, brokenness. Maybe these are messes that are not self-inflicted or something that you personally are not responsible for. It is not a consequence to a bad decision that you or I have made. It's just the messy world that we live in, and it becomes an opportunity for God's power to work in us. Those are messes sometimes that exist. But other times, and I want to make sure that we, we we differentiate this, other times there are messes that are opportunities to see God's power work through us. Not just in us, but through us. And here's what I mean by that. I call them ministry messes. Ministry messes because people are messy. You may believe this or maybe you don't believe this, but the church of Jesus Christ is full of messed up people. It's true. It may not apply to you, but I guarantee you it applies to someone sitting right next to you. You See what I just did there? Y'all sitting there going like, it doesn't apply to me. Well, that's the biggest mess of all because you're a mess. In fact, you know how sometimes like we do turn to your neighbor and greet? Turn to your neighbor right now and go, you're a mess, okay? You're a mess. You're a mess. And if, listen, and if they're really a mess, look at them and go, you're a hot mess. You're a hot mess. Look at this. You're never coming back. You know why this is so important? Not because we're insulting each other. We need to be mindful of something in the Christian church, guys, and this is what it is. Jesus Christ did not create a church for perfect people. He created a place for broken people to get healing through Christ. That's what the church is about. 
The church is not a place where we have to clean up our junk before we become a part of it. We come to be a part of it so God cleans up our junk. You understand? It is a messy place. God intended his church to be messy. Isn't that encouraging? When people come to church or they talk about church, man, that church was jacked up. This person did this or that person said this or can you believe this person did this? Yeah, I can. You know why? Because we're all a mess. Because we make mistakes. We're human. We have struggles. Sometimes there are things God's trying to do in us. Sometimes it's an invitation to be involved in others' lives so God can work through us. But the truth of the matter is the church is supposed to be a mess. Here's what I want you to hear about this. And I think this is so powerful. If we can walk away with nothing else today, walk away with this. God does his greatest miracles in the middle of our messes. God does his greatest miracles in the middle of our messes. Regardless of the kind of mess you might identify with this morning, and this is, this is powerful, regardless of the kind of mess that you are struggling or you deal with right now, all messes are opportunities to see God work a miracle. Whether it's placed on you or whether you had nothing to do with it or whether it's God inviting you into someone else's mess, all of them are opportunities to see God work a miracle in your life. This morning we're going to look at two stories and they're connected and I just love how God does this, whether it's through the worship or the word that Hillary gave, but we're looking at two specific stories today, just little bits and pieces of them about Israel leaving Egypt. And the first story we're going to briefly look at is God bringing Israel to the Red Sea. They brought them to the waters, to the Red Sea. And in that moment, they were either going to have to choose whether God was going to deliver them through or they were going to die. And God parts the water and brings them through and destroys Pharaoh's army because they walked and they trusted in him. The second story we're going to look at is while they were in the wilderness, their need for food and how God provided for them. But I want you to hear about, hear this really clearly. Both of these situations are really messy. So just track with me for a few moments as I give you just a real brief summary, and then we're going to read each of these stories and talk about them briefly, about God being in the middle of messes. Okay? Okay, first, the Red Sea story. What's happening? 400 plus years of oppression. Israel, they're living as slaves. Moses comes onto the scene because God calls him to help Israel leave. He says, I'm going to deliver my people, and you're going to lead them out of Egypt. Pharaoh refuses for them to go, right? This is common for a lot of people, but if you're not familiar with it, that's where we are right now. After 400 plus years, God uses Moses. There are 10 plagues that continue to hit the nation of Egypt because Pharaoh refuses to let the nation go. After the 10th plague, when Pharaoh himself loses his firstborn child and every firstborn Egyptian child that was in the nation, he releases, he releases Israel and lets them go into the wilderness and says, go, take your people, get out of here, I'm letting you go. But then he has a change of heart. Then he has a change of heart, and something in him rises up to be prideful, to say, I'm going to change my mind and go after these. So let's see what happens in Exodus 14, 1 through 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, and he's talking about him and the Israelites, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Herathoth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Okay, that doesn't really matter. Let me explain to you why. Verse 3. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden his heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. What was significant about the wandering is that God brought them right to a place where they were between Pharaoh's army when he pursued them and the Red Sea. They were between a rock and a watery place and there was no place for them to go and they were stuck there. So fast forwarding to verse 10, look what happens as Pharaoh's army approaches Israel. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there was the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. (laughs) Gotta love the faith of Israel. They already experienced 10 miraculous 
miraculous signs from God. They saw him do miracle after miracle after over 400 years of oppression. God pulls them out of Egypt, brings them out, delivers them through, and now they think in their situation that God brought them out there. Excuse me, Moses brought them out there to die. Would you be encouraged? No. They really were very, very frightened, anxious, fearful. We're not going to read it together, but Moses did answer to the people. I'm just going to paraphrase. He said, don't be afraid. I want you to stand firm. The Lord's telling us this morning, you're going to see the deliverance that God's going to put on you. The Egyptians you see today, he said, you're never going to see them again. God's going to fight for you. You just need to be still. That's what he said. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that God was involved in it and the Red Sea split and they walked through the water. The scriptures say the water piled up on both sides. They walked on dry dry ground. They went through it and Pharaoh in his arrogance and pride still thought he could capture them, pursued them through that water. God closed the waters, drowned the entire army and Israel was now free of Pharaoh's oppression. Pretty amazing story, right? But they were in the middle of a mess. Would you agree? That was a big, big mess. And they didn't know what they were going to do. Hold that thought. Two months after leaving Egypt, okay? Two months after leaving Egypt, after the 10 plagues that they saw God deliver them through, after the Red Sea parting and they walked through the Red Sea, they're now in the wilderness and they're hungry. And of course, Israel being the nation of faith would have took the high ground and said, we believeth that God's going to provide every food for us, you know, in Jesus' name, right? No, Jesus wasn't even involved in that situation. Well, I mean, he was, but they didn't know. I can tell you later about that if you don't understand what I'm talking about. Look at Exodus 16, verse 2 through 18. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Aren't they just the dumbest people you've ever seen and read about? You know what I love about Israel is that in the New Testament, Paul says in Romans, guess what? We're all Israel. We're all Israel. And he means about it from, he's talking about it from a different perspective, but you have to take both the good and the bad together. After all the miracles, after the deliverance they've seen, after God's faithful provision over and over again, they're still in a place where they're in a mess. They're wandering in a wilderness. They're tired. They're hungry. And instead of trusting God, they cry out and they grumble against Moses and Aaron, brothers, and they said to them, I wish we were back in Egypt so we could have just died there where we had all the food we wanted and we could have door dashed all day And they would have come every single time. If we were low on supplies, we could have Amazoned them or drop shipped them or eBayed them. And it didn't really matter. We were in all of this beautiful thing. But what they continued to forget about was that they were slaves. Now they're free and they're not trusting God. They're in a mess. Look at verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are out. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instruction. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other day. So God begins making a way. He provides manna from heaven. Manna is the term that they use for this bread-like substance that would show up, and they'd gather it. And he said, only gather enough for each day, and on the sixth day, gather enough for two. Why? Because they weren't supposed to work on the seventh. It was God's provision. If they would gather more, and Scripture does say in circumstances where people ignored that advice, it would become wormy and infested, and it would be gross, and they'd have to throw it away. God was teaching them to trust him for daily provision. Sounds a lot like what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer. When he said, give us this day our what? Daily bread, right? See how it works? Okay. So look what he says. Verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of this story, but I can tell you how it works out. 
God brings food to them through manna, and he brings uh, quail to them, and they actually eat, and they're filled. And he spends 39 more years, almost 40 years, feeding them with manna in the wilderness. God's hand of provision, when they were in a mess, God came through. You with me so far? Two examples of Israel in deep, deep messes, okay? It was in the mess that they experienced God's power, right? It was in the mess that they had no plan for themselves, that they saw God come through. It was in the mess that there was an opportunity to see God work in them and also work through them. Because what you see in the scripture is that for those that gathered more than they should have or they needed in that moment, they would distribute it to those that couldn't gather as much for different reasons, whether it was sickness or health or whatever. And everyone had just enough each and every day. So God used that mess to bless them and also to bless the nation. He loved the individual and he loved everyone else. That makes sense? Experiencing God's power happens when we are messy or when we're in the middle of the mess. So maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I'm not walking through the desert, I'm not crossing the Red Sea, but my life is a mess, or I have things I'm dealing with that are messy. How do I walk through that? So I want to say a few things this morning about experiencing God when things get messy. Now remember, there's two different types of mess. There's the mess that's directed specifically at you, in your situation or world, and then there's the ministry messes, where God invites you into something, and it's messy in the process. How do you experience God's power when things get messy in this world? And I want to take the word mess, and I broke it out to basically an acrostic to give you an idea of what it really means, mess. And there are four things I want to briefly talk about this morning, that if you apply these things and I apply these things, we can see God's power in us and we can see God's power through us. Okay, here are the four things. Number one, experiencing God's power when things get messy. Number one, make space for things to get messy. You could say, well, I'm already in the mess. Right, but this is important for us to understand. If you want to experience God's power in your life, you and I must make space in our life for things to get messy. I don't know too many people, if they have the choice between control, organization, and mess, choose mess. Most of the time, we choose control. We choose organization. We choose order. We choose clarity. Most people don't say, I just want it to be a big hot mess and I don't really care. Most people don't choose that. Many times it's just the world that we live in. But we spend much of our life avoiding messes. In fact, I would go as as far as saying many times we try to do what we can to protect ourselves from experiencing messes. Ask yourself this question. What do you do in your life to try to insulate yourself from mess? What do you do in your life to try to prevent mess from coming into your world? It's natural for us to try to insulate ourselves, but we can use all types of resources to box out mess in our world, to protect us from experiencing mess. How do we insulate ourselves from mess? Well, I just have a few examples. Maybe they apply to you or maybe they don't, but I think one of the number one ways that we use is wealth resource to insulate ourselves from mess. When things get messy, if we have the wealth and the resource, we can pay people to take care of it. Or we can build walls figuratively or literally around us. I heard someone years ago describe it as the more wealth someone has, the danger is there that they can build a very big moat around themselves to prevent mess from getting to them. They can get as far, far away from the mess as they possibly can. That doesn't mean that if you have wealth, you do that. It's just a resource that people can use to insulate themselves from things that are messy. Maybe you isolate yourself relationally. If you don't want to be involved in mess, Get away from people. Let me tell you, if you're not in relationship with anyone, there's a good chance you won't be able to experience relational messiness. Why? Because you're not in relationship with anyone. But if you start getting in relationship with other people, you're going to find something out. And guess what it is? It can get messy. It can get messy. That's just true. Do you use relational isolation as a way to protect yourself from being messy? You know what? There's just too much going on there. I just don't want to put my time into that. So I'm just going to draw a wall up and I'm not going to be involved. I need more control and I can't be involved in that mess. That's a real way that people isolate themselves to experience freedom from mess. You know, another way you, you avoid mess 
is not to isolate yourself relationally, but it's to surround yourself with people that think and look just like you. You ever think about that? If everybody around you believes what you believe, thinks what you think, and pretty much acts the way that you act, you insulate yourself from all kinds of potential mess, don't you? That is not the way the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be. We're not supposed to be uniform. We're supposed to walk in unity, which means we're diverse and different in the way we think and the way that we act, but we love the same God. Our actions, our behaviors are Christ-like, but our priorities, though they're Christ-like, are manifested in different ways because we have many personalities. But if you only spend time around the people that think the way you think and act the way you act and believe exactly the way that you believe, it insulates you from mess. That's another example. There's a lot of examples. I'm not going to touch on all of them. I think one of the biggest ones that could also be there would be fear, that you just don't know what's going to happen if you allow yourself to walk into mess. This is going to be unknown. So the fear, it's easier to be safe and not walk into the mess than to walk into a mess and have anxiety. Right? Just stay on the path that's tried and true, and you don't have to worry about things getting messy. The last one that I would have that I'd probably say uh, is insecurity. And again, there are probably others, but ways to keep yourself from getting messy, just believing that you don't really have the ability or the qualifications to be involved in the mess. That's somebody else's job. That's Pastor Paul's job. You know, I don't have the ability to do that. Yeah, let, let, let somebody else handle that. I don't have the ability and the qualifications. I'm I just going to do what I'm going to do, and I don't have the qualifications to do that. So let me just take a step back and just believe somebody else can handle that because I certainly wouldn't be used by God to handle that. If you believe that in that insecurity because you feel like you're unqualified, it's a great way to keep yourself out of the mess. You with me? You guys track with me so far? Okay, so number one, that's it. Make space for things to get messy if you want to experience God's power. Okay, the second thing that I'm going to encourage you to do is embrace God in the mess. Don't reject him. Embrace God in the mess. Do not reject him. It is so easy in messiness to put our fists up towards God as opposed to open our hands towards him. It is so easy in the unknown, if we're not careful, to question God instead of ask God questions. There's a difference. It's easy, and the enemy of our souls wants us in the middle of our messes to posture in a way that or, or that excludes God from the mess because we're irritated, frustrated. We don't know what the situation's about. We don't understand the why behind what's going on. We always look for the why. Truth of the matter is, guys, sometimes you'll never know the why in your mess. Sometimes God will never show you the why. He can show you and does show you how he makes beautiful things through the mess. But that doesn't mean that was the reason why you went through it. It just means God takes broken things and makes them beautiful. He takes miracles. I mean, he takes messes and he makes them into miracles. That doesn't mean that was the reason for the mess. But we should be embracing God in the mess. Because we need to remember in the middle of the mess, the only hope we have to get through it, is to trust in his power, not our own. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, when he talked to the Lord and he pleaded many times for the Lord to take this thorn in the flesh from him, look what he said. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was giving a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Messes are not bad things if we lean into God. Even if we don't understand it, God wants us to lean into him during difficulty, during struggles. And it doesn't matter what kind of struggle it is. And it doesn't matter what invitation God's given you, whether it's something that's placed upon you that's a mess, lean into God. Embrace God, don't reject him. If he's engaging with you and inviting you to be something and to be a part of something that can be messy, participate in it. And in the middle of the mess, what you're going to find, it's never your strength to begin with that gets you through it. It's always God. Last week, just hearing the testimonies of our water baptisms and the kids and the students that were actually speaking, they take the step. We take the step to make a declaration of what God's doing in our lives, and it's the power of God working through us that blesses the other people around us. 
It's not us speaking. It's the Spirit of God speaking through us. See how that works? It's not our strength that we walk through and we are delivered through. It is our obedience that God uses to give us the power to see things happen for his kingdom. You don't need to be qualified to serve God. You need to obey and God will qualify you. Which brings me to the third thing. If you want to experience the power of God in the mess, three, serve God in the middle of your mess. Serve God in the middle of your mess. I love this one because serving God in the middle of your mess doesn't mean just doing enough to keep up the appearance that you're doing good things. That's where we can get in trouble. In the middle of our messes, sometimes we feel like if we're just checking the boxes that we see in Scripture or what someone told us to do, that that's going to take care of the situation and it doesn't work. Let me give you an example. I'm struggling and I have, a, I have trouble. Not me, I'm just saying here's my example, okay? I struggle, Lord, with finances and I struggle with balancing budgets and I struggle with obedience and well, God, you've blessed me with all this stuff and, and I know life is kind of messy sometimes, but you know, your word says that I'm supposed to tithe or I'm supposed to give. So, you know, I've, I've given you my 10% and, and still things don't make sense and I don't know why I'm not really experiencing the power of you in my life. Why is this a struggle? I've, I've been tithing, Lord. Your word says I should tithe and that's what I do. And I look at this and go, the problem is when all we do is check a box and we look at what the law says, do we do it out of obedience or do we do it out of obligation? Because scripture would tell us, just to use that example of tithing, that that's not the law that we're supposed to follow. It's the foundation by how we should begin to live. The New Testament doesn't tell us that tithing is the way Christians should live. Christians should live with a heart of generosity towards others. So we don't follow the law and check the box. I serve on Sunday morning, Lord, once a month. I'm checking the box and I'm doing the thing that, that, that I can do. I'm serving on Sunday morning in this capacity. That's all I'm willing to give you, but I'm doing something because the partnership requirements say that I should serve on Sunday morning. Thank you, Jesus. You're not going to see God move in your life to the degree he would if all you're doing is seeing your service as a box that you can check before the Lord. It doesn't mean he can't use you in the midst of that, but you're limiting what God can do because service to God in the midst of mess isn't about what the law says or the box you can check. It's a position of your heart. Does that make sense? God encourages us to check boxes. No, God doesn't encourage us to check boxes. It doesn't make sense. How can I check boxes when he's called me to mentor a young person? If he invites you into discipling someone, how can you check a box and say you've done what God has asked you to do? What do you do when they text you or call you at 6 p.m. or 8 p.m. or there's a blow-up and you have to go pick them up because there's a problem with a parent or someone or a marriage is falling apart and you're directly involved in that? Do you pull out your boxes and say, sorry, dude, we already met for an hour this week. I'll see you next week. I checked my box. It's just a little too messy. And you know the crazy thing about that is that some of you might listen to me talk about that and say, well, that's what you do. You're a pastor. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about the church. Serve God in the, midst of your, in the middle of your mess. Where is God calling you to serve? You know where the number one area that he's calling us, I think, to serve as a church right now? There's all these areas across the church you can serve, but I'm absolutely 100% convinced one of the most significant areas we can serve in this church is to posture our hearts, our attitudes, and our eyes towards our students. And you might be sitting there saying, why? And if you're saying why, it's because you're not aware of what they're going through in this world. I can tell you that I believe without a shadow of a doubt that students have the hardest road ahead of them in juggling their faith and the culture. And let me tell you why. Not because they're exposed to it 24-7, which they are, just like many of us are. They go to school. They're in the technology world. It's already placed on them to tell them what their identity should look like, how their value comes from, what sexual purity should or should not look like, how their identity should be rooted in their sexual preference as opposed to being a holiness before God. There's all these things, but we re also struggle with those things. Here's why. Because they're young, and if you're going to look at what Scripture says about growing and maturity, they do not have the tools they should have yet to navigate this stuff. Adults should if we've been walking with God long enough. Do you hear what I'm saying? 
We should, as adults, have a spiritual maturity enough to walk through this and say, we have the tools. We don't have all the answers, but we have strength. We have wisdom. We've walked through things. We see God working. We can pour into the the people behind us and the generation behind us. They don't have it. What they have is energy, excitement, and a lot of naivety. And I'm not saying that as an insult. I'm just saying it's the hardest area, I think, for generations to walk through are our students because they have the same influences that we have as adults, but they lack some of the key tools to actually figure it out. How do I know that that's true? Ask yourself this question. If you're an adult older in your years, you can pick whatever date it is. How many times have you ever said to yourself, I wish I knew then what I know today. I wish I had the wisdom, the understanding, and the experience that I have today when I was 13, 14, 15, going on my first date, interested in my first girlfriend, my first boyfriend, listening to that teacher tell me X, Y, and Z. I wish I knew what I knew today. I wish I knew it back then. How many of us have ever would be honest enough to raise our hand and say, I have said that to myself? A lot of us have said that, right? Why am I sharing that with you this morning? Because one of the areas I think God wants us to be involved in is our students. Do you know we have students across our church that need mentors? They need not just people to shake their hand and say, hey, we appreciate you. They need men who will actually be dads. They need women who will teach them how to grow into young women that actually honor God. They need people that can teach them how to fix things. They need people that will show them how to write papers that will help them with college entrance or help them navigate a vocation when they get out of high school, how to deal with peer pressure. The word, the, the, the list goes on and on and on. And if we sit back and think the church has that, that is the most ridiculous thing that I've ever heard. Because our youth leaders in our church get two hours a week with our students. And the need is always greater than what we have available to meet. If you're here this morning, and that's one of the areas that God has put on your heart, or he's challenged you to put on your heart, can I tell you, we desperately, desperately need people to be involved in the next generation in this church. And you might be sitting here saying, well, I can't because I don't have the skill, or I'm too busy, or I blank, or I blank, or I blank. Well, maybe God's asking you to take some of those insulators down so that you can get involved in those things. So that you can find that maybe in the midst of your inadequacy, God can show you. He's not looking for your abilities. He's looking for your availability. And he will use you and grow you in significant ways. Can I encourage you to serve God in the middle of your mess? There are people all throughout our church that need the word of encouragement, wisdom, help, financial help, uh, relational help, support. Sometimes people just need a phone call and a friend And if we're not functioning as a community and doing that with each other, how do we expect to get through our mess? Which brings me to the last point this morning. Don't just serve in the middle of your mess. Share your mess with friends. Share your mess with friends. Now, I've had friendships over the years, and I can tell you I'm more willing to share good things with them than I am the difficult things because, and vice versa sometimes. You know, it's better to be in the fun moments with people than it is the difficult times. But the truth of the matter is, the church exists for us to walk in an attitude of community. And we're supposed to share each other's burdens. As scripture says in Galatians 6 2, Paul writes, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law. Of Christ. Does that make sense? Carry each other's burdens. Why? Carry each other's burdens? Because in the midst of carrying each other's burdens, God can change something in you and He can use you to help change something in someone else. Proverbs eleven twenty five says, A generous person will prosper. He whom refreshes others will himself be refreshed. There's this beautiful artistic formula that exists when God chooses, when when we choose to respond to God in the middle of our mess. To share our mess with friends allows us to be humble, transparent, and it helps others walk alongside. I can't tell you the number of times over the years that people have dealt with significant things and struggle. And when you ask them, who is walking alongside you with this? The answer many times is, well, I don't want to talk to anybody about it. Certainly no one would want to give the time. Certainly nobody has the interest. Or they just feel prideful and they don't want to talk about it. Can I ask you, please, to reconsider that? Because if we all recognize that we wrestle with mess, 
then we're no better than each other. It's in the process of understanding our messes and walking them out godly that God does the miracles. Not so that the church can be a place that's perfect and full of life and no one has problems, but we give people a new way of understanding that God does not remove the mess from his body. He teaches us a way to process it and get through the mess. Becoming a Christian, becoming a Christian does not remove you from the Red Sea instances or the Red Sea moments. It just gives us a way to get through the Red Sea. That's what the world needs to hear. Not becoming a follower of Jesus removes your messes. He just gives you different tools, different abilities, different people and voices, and through his power of his Holy Spirit, the strength to walk through those difficult times so that others can experience what you've experienced and there can be peace and joy in the middle of our messes. Does that make sense? So I want you to encur- I want to hope that encourages you this morning just to think about your messes. Think about what God can do in you, what God can do through you. But I want to just turn a corner this morning because our response can look different in many ways. Our response can be what God needs to do in us, in our messes, or we can take a step back and recognize the greatest mess that ever existed was the problem of sin. The problem of sin that could never be fixed by you or by me. And our worship team is going to come, and I want you, as they come, I just want you to listen to me as I read this last verse this morning as we take a few moments as respond today in communion. Colossians chapter 2, 13 through 15. Look what the Apostle Paul says. He says, you were dead because of your sins. And because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you, what does it say? Alive with Christ. For he forgave, he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. You see, whether we're talking about messes that were thrust upon us or getting involved in the messes of ministry around us, the truth of the matter of, it is all directly linked foundationally to the sin problem in our world. Because the greatest mess that we could ever experience is still rooted in the problem of sin. It's called sinful nature. It's called the brokenness that God has allowed us to walk through during this time because man chose brokenness over relationship with God. And the most important thing we could do today is not just think about our circumstantial mess or the ministry mess that might be around us. It's the most significant mess that happened since the beginning of the world that God has fixed on our behalf through Jesus Christ. If you struggle to trust God through the circumstantial messes, if you struggle with being confident that God will give you the strength and equip you to walk through ministry messes because you feel disqualified or maybe unable to do it, remember what he already accomplished on the cross through Christ because that was the hardest mess, the biggest mess, and it was defeated through Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen? And if God is willing to destroy the greatest mess and the power of sin and death by letting Jesus go to the cross to die for you and die for me so that we can stand strong in who we are in Christ, every other mess is in, is in his hands. Every other mess is in control. He has control over. Does that make sense? That's what we need to be reflecting about this morning. Every mess that exists Every mess that could ever happen in this world was taken care of on the cross because sin brings brokenness and death, but Jesus Christ through his cross brings life, love, healing, hope, forgiveness, joy, prosperity. That's the power of the cross. And that's why wrapping up this message today isn't so much about believing God to get through our current mess It's about thanking him for delivering us from the greatest mess of all. And that is the power of sin. And he did that on the cross. So this morning, if you have your communion, I want to ask you if you would take the wafer out today. I'm going to take just a few moments today. And I'm going to ask if you would just quiet your heart as you take the wafer. And I'm going to read that scripture one more time this morning. And as I read it, just reflect on the word of God and the power that exists through Jesus Christ. 
that Jesus defeated the greatest mess so that we could be in relationship with God forever. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 2, 13, he said, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he gave, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Let's take a moment and quiet our hearts and then we're going to take this bread together to remind us of the sacrifice of Jesus. God, we just come before you this morning and we thank you for the sacrifice you gave us through the cross with Christ. I thank you, Lord, that any mess that we could possibly imagine or walk through in this this world has been taken care of by sin being defeated on the cross. God, may we take this bread today in memory of your broken body and how it represents healing that can come. Through your brokenness, we are made whole. We take the bread this morning and we say thank you. Father, we drink this cup this morning as a reminder of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that he cleanses us from all sin, all pain, and all death, not because we may not experience those things, the pain and the hardship, but because he's made a way through them. He's made a way for us to walk through difficulty, for us to walk through struggle, for the mess to be made whole. So God, I just pray in the midst of our messes that we would remember greatest gift we ever could receive, the shed blood of Christ that paid the penalty once and for all. Let's take the cup and remember. I encourage you as our worship team leads us in this song today as we get ready to close. If you would just stand and join us as we make this declaration. God promised he will always fulfill and his promises aren't just for a moment. They are, as the scripture says, they're yes and amen, which means we agree, we agree, we agree, and we can be confident that what he said he will do, he will do because he'd accomplished it on the cross.